Welcome to Clear as Quantum, an Equus podcast about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we'll try to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers from the University of Newcastle in New South Wales. I'm Liz Bridge. I work at the University of Queensland developing quantum sensors. Equus is the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, funded by the Australian Research Council. In this podcast series, we're interviewing a range of Equus researchers working in universities across Australia. Today, we're talking to Sally Shrapnel from the University of Queensland, who has had an interesting journey into quantum science, giving her a unique and interesting perspective on the quantum world. Now, when quantum scientists describe their work, it's impossible to avoid some of the quantum speak. Uh, We'll be exploring some of these key phrases in upcoming episodes, but here's a few to listen out for in today's episode. One of the phrases that comes up a bit is uh, quantum computing, and that's a computer that makes use of some of the quantum capabilities that we're just starting to really get our handle on in, in terms of a technological sense. Sally mentions a QPU, and this is a quantum processing unit. And the acronym is just like the CPU, or Central Processing Unit, which is the brain of your phone or laptop. Computers at the moment don't have QPUs, but there are companies out there right now trying to build such a thing to improve the capabilities of our computers. Quantum computing is often contrasted with what physicists call classical computing. Classical just means it's the physics that was understood before quantum physics was discovered or invented. And so classical computers are the phones, laptops, game consoles, everything that has a USB power supply and and is a computer, is a classical computer in our society today. Quantum computers do not yet exist as technologies that you can buy, but there are many companies and research groups who are month by month moving towards a future of quantum computing hardware. One of the topics we touch on today is machine learning. Now, this is a technique where computers hunt through large amounts of data to find patterns that teach us about the underlying system that we're trying to learn about. Our guest today is Sally Shrapnel, a physics lecturer and researcher at the University of Queensland. Sally touches on machine learning, specifically when she describes her work on data processing for the COVID-19 pandemic. So one of the acronyms Sally uses is AI. This means artificial intelligence. This is similar to machine learning, where computers start to perform some of the tasks independently. Um, Sally, welcome to the Clearest Quantum podcast. And tell us a little bit about what you are doing there in Brisbane and how you got into quantum science. Thanks, Lachlan. Uh, So what am I doing here in Brisbane? Um, Walking around freely, luckily for us (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) Sorry to rub it in, everyone else around Australia. (laughs) Um, But apart from that... uh, I am a research scientist, so I work at the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, and I spend part of my time teaching students and doing research looking at predominantly the foundations of quantum mechanics, but I also do some research looking at whether we can use quantum systems to do machine learning tasks and artificial intelligence tasks better. Uh, The other part of your question, I think, was what was my journey to get to this point? So I presume you don't want me to start with like when I was two. Um, I'll start with 
You might have started because it's really early, Sally. (laughs) It's a long journey. I'm pretty old. No, um, I will start with, so when I finished high school, I did actually enrol in a physics and maths degree at university. And I did that for about a year. And at that point, I really, I I was really interested in cosmology. Um, But first year subjects are kind of pretty dry. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of exciting big question kind of stuff, which is why I was interested in physics. And so I dropped out and changed over to medicine and I did a medical degree. Um, and I finished that medical degree and then worked for a year as a doctor. And at the end of that year, I thought, oh, you know, I really like being a doctor, but I, I miss using that part of my brain that, that, Um, you know, answers big questions and thinks in that very abstract way that physicists think. So I went and did a master's degree at Imperial College in physics and engineering in medicine. So it was a a degree where you could come with a background in physics and science, you know, mathematics kind of um, natural sciences, or you could come with a background in, in medicine. And so I came in with a background in medicine. And I did that degree and loved it and then had to kind of make a decision, am I going to go physics engineering or am I going to go medicine? And at that point, I still hadn't done everything I wanted to do in medicine. So I went back and um, did some specialty training as a rural GP and then worked all around the place in Australia and the UK as a rural general practitioner for about 15 years. And then at the age of 42, which is, of course, the age when you should work out the meaning of life, the universe and everything, I went back and enrolled in a PhD. Um, And... Uh, that PhD was here at the University of Queensland with Jared Milburn, who was my um, supervisor, who's a quantum um, theoretician, and a philosopher, Phil Dow, who was interested in metaphysics, the nature of reality, the nature of causation. And so I did a PhD, and then I loved it so much. I did less and less and less seeing patients and more and more and more doing physics, and then eventually uh, made the decision to uh, do a postdoc full-time and then a couple of postdocs later now I work. Um, I've got a um, continuing position at the University of Queensland as a, a lecturer in physics and data science. So that's how I got here. That is a really interesting journey. Um, on, a, on an earlier episode when a, a couple of us we're introducing ourselves as hosts of this podcast. It was a little bit boring because we'd all sort of (laughs) more or less followed the do a bit of science at school, do a bit of science at university, get sort of drawn into quantum science. So it's really exciting to hear that there are other pathways to, to end up in quantum science. I have a couple of questions from your story. The first is, were you using quantum science in your medicine, medical practice, um, the sort of medical applications of quantum science, or was it something that wasn't really prominent to you? I would say the times I used it most was when people would say, I've, I've come across this amazing new remedy called quantum something or other, and it, it uses homeopathic quantum, and I'd be able to go, that's a load of rubbish. <laughs> so <laughs> I probably used a little bit in that context. Um, you obviously MRI technology relies on on you know it works because quantum theory is true, uh, but I guess in my day to day job as a medical practitioner, no, you, you really don't think at that level. Um, there's very little parallels between the kind of work that I do in my physics research and the way you work as a as a clinician. I would say very different, completely different job. I'd say, Sally, your background and skill set 
you quite uniquely placed with the the pandemic we've had this last year. Obviously, there was a huge amount of data to analyse, and you need to have a good understanding of the of the medical field to know what this data meant and how it worked. And that put you in quite a unique position from that perspective, didn't it? I wonder if you wanted to comment on some of the stuff you did in relation to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the way it happened was part because my PhD topic was actually what I was really burstingly interested in was trying to understand how quantum systems have this kind of spooky action at a distance, as Einstein called it. And so I started looking at causation and how quantum systems, how, how cause and effect occurs when you have interacting quantum systems. And that led me down the pathway of trying to look for a formal structure, a kind of mathematical structure of causation. And the best one that we have is actually machine learning and artificial intelligence approaches to causation. So that took me down that path. So I learned a lot about machine learning and artificial intelligence. And in fact, what happened with the COVID pandemic was there was this huge amount of data that was coming in from all around the world uh, that desperately needed kind of interpretation. And when you have that much data coming in, it's very difficult for humans to sift through it and look for patterns. And really that's what we needed was was to try and find the new patterns. So one of the things Mm -hmm. with COVID was that um, we as clinicians had a pretty good repertoire of things to do when someone came into the intensive care unit in dire straits. There's a kind of list, a little recipe of things that you do that you know are going to work. And as doctors were working down that recipe list, nothing was working. People were getting sicker rather than better. And so it was clear that there was an urgent need for looking for new patterns, looking looking at all the clinical data that was coming in, looking at people's biomarkers, looking at their presenting symptoms, looking at their past history, trying to gather all that information and see what is it that's different here. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to become part of a big international project that was gathering data from patients all around the world uh, to have a look and see if what we could understand about the patterns that were happening. That's amazing. That must have been quite rewarding to feel you could contribute in such an active and crucial way in, in, in a, a point where the world was dependent on people with your skill set. It must have felt quite good to be able to physically get in and do something at that stage. It was really, really um, exciting and terrifying at the same time because what we saw, imagine. this was very early on, this is like February, March, last year like when it all kicked off and the way we were getting data was um, from a number of hospitals all around the world and every Thursday night we would have a zoom call with each of the the specialists from from around the world and you would just see um, the pandemic kind of hit their particular hospital and people dying and staff dying and people being ventilated in the corridors and and everyone just absolutely um you know, working continuous shifts for weeks on end, and it was pretty confronting. Um, so that was uh, a kind of challenging part of the project. But I guess from a kind of really morbid perspective, as a doctor, events like this don't typically happen in people's lifetimes. But being actually there as part of it, seeing a pandemic unfold and seeing a new disease appear and, and being part of the discovery process around it, it was pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, stimulating from a scientific perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can imagine it highlights for me the overlap. So many of the big issues, big problems that society faces that humanity needs to solve come back to these issues of data. The The ability to measure it now is so ubiquitous. We carry around smartphones that are capable of recording immense amounts of data all the time. 
physicists have a long history of dealing with data and trying to probe it for interesting patterns and trying to understand how to visualize it and see what's going on. So it's, I don't have a medical background, but I am passionate about physics. And it's really exciting to hear that those sorts of fundamental physics-y, science-y skills are really valuable. Oh, incredibly valuable. And I would say it's one thing that's really underappreciated, particularly in the AI machine learning, is that physicists are so in demand in that arena because they're so good at modeling. They're so good at, at um, you know, like you say, looking for patterns in data and, and um, generally they're pretty good with uh, programming and just physicists have a broad range of skills, I think, that's, that they themselves underappreciate. I think, you know, often you, you have a student that gets the end of a physics degree and they're not quite sure what they've got to offer the world. But I think really there's a tremendous range of skills that are acquired through a physics degree that you can apply in all sorts of data-driven situations. Um, and pretty much, you know, most fields now um, in the world are data-driven. That's, that's how everything's going. Earlier on, Sally, you talked about your interest in quantum for machine learning. Could you give us some examples of where quantum physics comes into machine learning and how that helps or what application that might have? Yeah, so there's a couple of kind of fairly simple um, opportunity, I guess, ways of thinking, and that is that we know that um, there are some computational speed-ups, so we can do a few tasks better if we have a, a fully fault-tolerant you know, quantum computer with lots and lots of qubits that works really well, the thing that we don't have yet. What people are interested in is is whether maybe the devices that exist now, so those, you know, with less than a million qubits, but but actually we know that work reasonably well and are pretty noise tolerant, et cetera, do those devices offer a possibility to perform the kind of operations that we do when we perform classical normal machine learning? Can they do them in a, a way that's a bit more efficient? So, for example, more energy efficient? And that is um, actually one of the things that's very under-publicized amidst all the hype around AI and machine learning is the fact that it's extraordinarily energy-consuming. So, you know, the, the big algorithms that we use frequently today um, are very, very energy-hungry in a way that's just not sustainable. So if we can replace some elements of the classical machine learning algorithm, if we can outsource them to QPUs, that are more energy efficient, then that's going to be a big advantage. So that's probably the first thing. The thing that I'm, more, I mean, I'm, and I am interested in that, but the thing I'm more interested in is the really, really foundational stuff. And that is that um, we know that uh, all computing devices are built out of physical stuff. And we know ultimately that the theory that describes physical stuff in the world, the best theory that we have is quantum theory. We know that that generalizes everything that we know about classical theory. And so you, you, know, you get to the point where you think, okay, well, obviously, um, if we really understand quantum better, if we understand the way that uh, quantum systems can be manipulated to convey information or to share information or to manipulate information, then ultimately we're going to have a better understanding of the limits of what's possible for learning physical learning systems in our world. So I guess the question would be, you know, if someone said to you, is there a limit to what we can learn? Like, are we going to be able to learn everything? Are we going to be able to predict climate change perfectly? Are we going to be able to learn, um, you know, what's happening all around the universe? Uh, you know, are there any limits to our learning? If you want to look at what those limits are, you'd probably want to be looking at quantum mechanics. So I guess part of my research 
now is is focused on is there some fundamental limit to what we can learn um, when we have access to quantum resources? Is there some kind of bottom line that we can't get below? Right. Well, there there are a lot of students around the country right now who are trying to work out, is there a fundamental limit to what I can learn when I'm not allowed to go to school and I have to do it from home? (laughs) (laughs) And And I think you don't need quantum mechanics yeah. to, to solve that one. It is it is a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm interested in all of this, and you're using the word quantum a lot. And I want to just focus in on this because you mentioned in your in your story, your journey. You mentioned in a medical context, patients talking about quantum things that may not have been super scientific. I noticed recently there's a number of uses of quantum in advertising. So I think that there's a brand of, of dishwasher detergent that is that is quantum or clothes detergent that you can buy in the supermarket. I noticed that near a train station in, in Sydney, in, in Castle Hill, there's a quantum medical practice, actually, and it, it has the word quantum in its name. So it's a catchy word. I think a lot of people... Yeah, that um, I, <laughs> it sounds like a job for me. There you are. That's it. Medical the, the, practices. The, the quantum doctor. The <laughs> um, what does the word quantum mean? In, in how do you describe it to people? How do you picture it? Um, and and I guess throughout all of this, when we talk about quantum, we're contrasting it with um, what we as physicists mm. call classical and what most people call mm. normal. I think that's so interesting. I think quantum, the word quantum has kind of started permeating the popular consciousness more and more recently. And I actually do have that detergent. I couldn't help myself but buy it. When I saw it, I was like, I've just really got to see what's quantum about this. The question is, saying, <laughs> does it work really well? That's the question. Oh, do you know, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to buy into that advertising gig. I nearly yeah. said, yes, it's amazing. And then I thought, some will think I'm in pay. Um, no, so... Um, I don't know, maybe it was James Bond that started the trend, you know, the quantum of solace or whatever. Um, But I think the word quantum captures cutting-edge science. It's cutting-edge. It's what's coming. It's what's next. It's what's new. It's what's – and I think the reason people are now – I mean, we all know quantum mechanics has been around for over 100 years. But I think the reason people are um, latching onto it is because of this, I'm sure you've heard the so-called second quantum revolution. You know, the first quantum revolution was where we took advantage of the ideas of, um, you know, wave particle duality and and transistors were built and things like that. But the, the second quantum revolution is where we take advantage of these really cool properties of quantum systems like this so-called spooky action in a distance or the idea that things can be in more than one place at the same time superposition and those ideas they just so capture your imagination so they tend to and they they the the foundations of quantum theory push you into really interesting uncomfortable spaces like where you think maybe there's a possibility of multiverses where there's you know, infinite versions of yourself doing slightly different things and um, the idea that you can teleport things and the idea that maybe time doesn't always flow forward. Um, And I think those ideas, because, you know, we are actually exploring them in in scientific context in very serious ways, that is leaking into the public consciousness and things like, you know, the Ant-Man uh, you know, I'm, all the Marvel films, like so many of them now, well, somewhere that like I have a joke with my kids, like I bet you 10 bucks, the word quantum will be in there somewhere. There's some quantum advantage. <laughs> 
Um, and I think it is because we are just scientific. We are kind of on the cusp of really starting to understand what the true advantage of all this weird phenomenon is. So, yeah, that's my that's my thinking. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, it is true that in, in physics, I was going to say in physics labs, but actually for a long time it was often on physics blackboards. Quantum physics has been around, uh, but it's it's been that playground of thoughts. And we routinely, I mean, I know in my own research, I do experiments which, when I was born, were impossible to, to imagine doing. Uh, so in a, in a lifetime, just a generation, a human generation, we've gone from being being only able to imagine some of these things to actually being able to routinely measure them. And then right now on the cusp of turning some of them into useful technologies, you've already alluded to the, the sort of coming frontier of quantum computers. I think we're going to have to come back in a future episode and explore that one on its own in more detail. But um, sure. all sorts of quantum technologies that are not just demonstrating the utility of these things in a lab, but actually turning it into things that will be available in industry, in medicine, in, in our lives to really impact and make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things was because when I started my PhD, I had this pretty naive view really of what why I was interested in it was I just really wanted to understand um, the truth of these statements like, oh, things can be in the same, you know, can be in two different places at the same time or we can go backwards in time or we can teleport things. All these things just seemed so totally unrealistic to me. I just wanted to know, and, you know, there are obviously very serious scientists that are, are working on this. I wanted to know how that was, how that conjunction was possible. And I think what I realised um, is that it is really, really, there are some really amazing and, and counterintuitive and mind-bending things that you can do when you try and manipulate and control quantum systems. But it's not an anything goes. It's not like, okay, and, and we are just going to be able to, you know, do absolutely everything and there'll be no no limits anymore. So what's interesting now is knowing, okay, it looks like there are going to be these really cool things that we can do, but but are there any caveats? Are there any interesting limits? Are there, you know, what what's what's the kind of um, potential, the scope that we've got with these devices? Is there, you know, how big is the scope kind of thing? I guess that's one of the, the things that we want to try and sell with our research is we're a center of excellence for engineered quantum systems. And one of the things we're doing is trying to make technology using our understanding of quantum mechanics. And where does that come in application for the real world? And we can talk about quantum computing, but most people don't really understand what that means or how it's going to affect their lives. But ultimately, there's going to be technology that we create through our research that's going to end up in people's smartphones in, in 10, 15, 20 years time. And, and everyone's going to have capabilities in their pocket or at their hand that wasn't possible without this second quantum revolution that we talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the big things that people don't know about is the is metrology, so sensing and measuring things. Really, quantum mechanics gives us kind of longer arms and keener eyes and better ears, and effectively you can you can measure things a little bit more precisely. And what's going to be interesting about that is we're going to see the world in ways that we've never seen before. You know, there's these ideas of quantum microscopes where you can look at biological samples in a manner that doesn't actually damage the samples at all. That just opens up an enormous range of possibilities in terms of understanding physiological processes that are relevant to medicine. That will be a, a huge advantage. I was looking, uh, reading about some advances, potential advances in the resolution of MRI machines. 
So, you know, when you, you do an MRI, so an MRI is where you go and you get a scan of your brain or your leg or whatever, and the doctors look at it and it gives you a pretty nice resolution of everything that's inside. So you get to look at your brain and all the bits and pieces in your brain. And we have this phenomenon in medicine called an incidentaloma, which is every time the resolution improves, we suddenly get to look at things in a way that we've never seen before. And you see stuff you've never seen before and you're like, oh, like is that something we should be worried about? Or is that just something that everyone has? Everyone yeah, is has there, that. Is there we something just wrong with I'm just thinking it's going to be a whole heap of new incidentalomas diagnosed when we, when we beef up the resolution of our MRI machines to the next notch. Um, we'll have to try and figure out, okay, what are we seeing there? Is that disease or is that just normal? So I can't remember if it was true or not. When I was in high school, there was a, a water scare in Sydney, in the Sydney region. Um, some contaminant was in the water. And I don't know if this was just urban myth or not, but I, I heard from a number of people that what had really happened was they just improved their filtering and measurement analysis of the water and this, whatever it was, had been in Sydney water <laughs> yeah. for decades, but it was just measured for the first time. <laughs> Exactly, an incidental omer. Uh -huh. Yeah, perfect. I guess that um, what you were saying about improvement of the imaging in medicine and they'll find things they haven't seen before, it, it can lead to better medicine, right? It can lead to better understanding, to better diagnosis, better treatment. And so the, this development of quantum physics and quantum technology could lead to healthier lifestyles for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess... Um, uh, just so I don't want to falsely advertise what research I do, you know, I think that engineering these devices is really important and that's, um, you're both experimentalists, yeah. are you? Yeah, we are. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So you do the real, I mean, you, you, you're the ones that are building this stuff. And, but I think the thing that I'm most interested in is, is what it tells us about the nature of the world and, and our place in it and how we understand um, what there is out there and all those kind of big philosophical questions uh, take on a really, really interesting slant when you consider the fact that quantum theory is true. We know it's true. It's extremely well verified. It's extremely robust experimentally. And we're now, we understand it well enough that we can actually build devices to do things that we've never been able to do before. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, what does that mean for for the concepts that we just take for granted, like the fact that time always flows forward, the fact that, you know, I can't be here and in Amsterdam at the same time, much as I'd like to be. I can't, you know, all those sorts of questions. It, there's a bit of a tension between, you know, what we understand the theory of quantum mechanics to be telling us and what we understand about the way the world works around us. You know, that's where my passion for quantum mechanics comes from, is understanding those things better. What happens when you start looking at those questions and, and looking at them from a technical perspective and trying to prove things rather than just kind of wave your arms around and say, oh, this is really cool. And actually, you know, you want to prove that, there are, that things are possible or things are not possible. I think that's where new ideas that eventually do get translated into technology come from. So I think you can be a physicist and just have that uh, idea of being motivated by the big questions and that passion for really understanding things and you, you know you still ultimately will be contributing to to a useful um, endeavor that can end up creating new technology and yeah that's that's a really nice perspective and listeners to of our previous episode will will already be familiar with the fact that myself and Liz and our other co-host uh, Yasmin are experimentalists 
We asked ourselves the question, Sally, what is the sound of quantum? And I'd be really interested to know if there is any particular sound <laughs> that, that you associate with that, because the podcast is an audio format, so our listeners yeah. can't can't see quantum through this and they can't touch quantum through this, but maybe they can hear quantum. From a more theoretician's perspective, is there any sound? Well, that's such a good question. I mean, the boring answer is phonons, but I'm not going to go there. Uh -huh. um, I reckon, I reckon um, the sound of quantum for me probably is, so part of the research that I'm doing right at the moment with my postdoc, Michael Cuming, is that what we're looking at is we're wanting to understand um, people learn generally in high school science about thermodynamics and the fact that entropy always increases. Well, it's positive, put it that way. It's always increasing. And somehow maybe that drives the arrow of time. Um, and the fact that we live in a universe where entropy is always increasing, you know, eggs don't unscramble themselves and shattered glasses don't suddenly pop back up onto the table. And you know, if you put your coffee in the middle of a cold room, it's going to get cold kind of stuff. And so what we've been looking at is, is there a kind of bottom limit to that entropy production? Is there a kind of tiniest amount or can you actually go to zero like can you actually not have any entropy production ever and when you look at that question hard enough you kind of realize that there is always some entropy production and that's because there are always vacuum fluctuations there are always fluctuations in energy that are occurring at this tiny quantum level so when you say what's the sound of quantum to me i immediately hear that kind of white noise constant spontaneous emission you know kind of noise of um of the quantum fluctuations that never you know that are driving us forward driving entropy and i think driving the arrow of time there you go there's a big statement with no proof <laughs> <laughs> well that's fantastic um i'm looking at the clock and i think that we'll We'll be happy to finish it there. Liz, did you have any other questions that you wanted to ask? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, Sally, you've had quite a diverse career and it's not been a straightforward trajectory like a lot of people imagine a career might be. If you uh, had a word of wisdom to give to high school kids today, what would it be about finding the, the direction they want to go or the career they want to do? I think don't panic that you have to know now, right? There's so many different ways you can... Um, find a job and a pathway that you love there's no one formula that fits everybody or every situation mm -hmm. and I think for me um, I've learned that you know there are lots of different jobs that I can be happy in but no one says I have to do one for my whole life I you know if you find yourself in a situation where you you're really captivated by an idea or a concept then um, it's great if you can take that opportunity and, and follow it through. I think, you know, there there is that sense when you're going through high school that you have to kind of decide what you're going to do at uni and somehow that's going to fit you into a little box and, and then that's what you'll have to do. Um, but people do do it that way, but there are plenty of people that have lots of um, different trajectories, um, come out of high school and have a break, go to a TAFE course, get interested in something, come back to university. Uh, you know, work in industry for a while. I, I think um, what you should be driven by is your interest um, because if something brings you joy, you'll be motivated to do it and then work doesn't feel like work. It's just a, a fun kind of part of your day. And, and um, so that's what I would say. Follow your nose, follow your instinct, do what you enjoy. And don't panic. 
and don't panic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely fantastic uh, advice. And I think it's very easy to panic. Yeah. <laughs> don't, oh, yeah. Be, don't be locked down and be frightened about it. Yeah. Just stay interested in things and follow interesting things. And there's a fun journey for everyone out there. I think, yeah, and I think the main thing is that what people don't realise is that sometimes taking a longer route means that you other opportunities appear along the way that wouldn't have otherwise. You know, if you go straight from school into a university degree and, <clears throat> you know, if you compare someone who maybe took a bit of a roundabout trajectory, during that roundabout trajectory they'll have life experiences and they'll have opportunities that they wouldn't have had maybe if they'd gone that route. So... I don't think one one pathway trumps the other um, and then taking opportunities as they come, regardless of what they yeah. are, is really key. Yeah, that's great. Well, we're running out of time for this interview. It would be fantastic to be able to continue chatting at length. But Sally, thanks very much for coming on and sharing some of your story and some of the interesting anecdotes and interesting thoughts about quantum and a really interesting perspective. No worries. Anytime. Thanks, Lachlan. Thanks, Liz. Yeah, thanks, Sally. That's all we've got time for in today's episode. We hope that in this podcast we can make things as clear as quantum, or perhaps even clearer. To learn more about quantum physics, explained by experts in the field, subscribe to Clear as Quantum wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your family and friends. Until next time, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out. Mm-hmm.